0: All right, guys. Well, thanks for that intro, Darren. You know, this week is, Why Does Loving God Allow Suffering? But next week is, What Is the Meaning of Life? And Darren's speaking on that. So we're getting some pretty heavy, heavy-hitting questions, I think. And what great ways to get into conversation with great questions that everyone has. So uh, I don't expect to really bring uh, everything around suffering and all of the answers. I mean, in 20 to 25 minutes, that's really hard to do. But I'm going to try. But people have been talking about this for for centuries and centuries and trying to really grasp this. And um, I'm convinced that the short answer, if you if you just want to take 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 the short answer and walk out, you could. It's it's we have to, we, we look to the cross. But what does that mean, and how does that— So we're actually going to gonna take it from where our friends are and funnel it down and then actually help them to see the cross, to see Jesus, to see what that actually means. Um, because uh, raised as a, I was raised in a Lutheran church. I didn't really hear too much um, at that church about uh, the gospel. Um, and one day the Lord opened my eyes, and I understood those words of the cross or what Jesus did on the cross in a fresh way. And so as we dialogue on these things with our friends, I hope that they, too, while we talk with them, they'll understand the cross in a whole new light. And so that's hopefully what I can um, show us today a little bit. We can learn as we look to God's word and um, really take on this uh, head-on, this this question that really suffering puts everyone on an even plane. Everyone has dealt with suffering in some way, some more than others, much more than others. But we can all admit that we live in a a world of decay, death, pain, brokenness, sadness, and the list goes on. We have not ever experienced a world without that. So we're all on a level plane. What a great way to get into conversation and relate to people. So people say the fact of appalling evil and suffering in the world is one main reason they cannot believe in the traditional God of the Bible Because the God of the Bible is portrayed as a God who is both all-powerful and all-good. And if that God exists, he would not create a world filled with pointless evil. Yet the world's filled with pointless evil. And therefore, they say, God cannot exist. So we cannot have a God, one, that's all-powerful. But if God is all-powerful, then he can't be good if there's suffering. If God is good, then he can't be all powerful if there's suffering. That's another way of putting it. Hence, there is no God, or no God of the Bible, at least. And so people just wipe out the, the God of the Bible, the God we proclaim, based on uh, kind of this conclusion. And, and if only one and not the other, right? If, if, if he's powerful but not good, and if he's, he's good but not powerful, he's not our God. So we really want to help them see how can a loving God how can he be good but also powerful and allow suffering? So what are some unbiblical or skewed reasons people give for suffering and evil in the world? Think of them. Some could be, just talk to a guy the other day, he's like, well, because we're all, we all just need to be better people. We all need to learn to love one another more. That was one reason. Another reason gets flo- floated around to me is uh, we just need to recycle. We just need better to the earth. The earth is retaliating back at us. And we could go on and on with reasons why there's pain and suffering in the world. Maybe it's because... Um, you know, the the, the rich are, are handling their money wrong, or, or you know, and there's endless amounts of reasons why they're suffering. You get into other religions, and they'll, they'll tell you why. But I want to suggest that um, the reason why we have so many questions is because we have this limited view, this way that we frame the problem of suffering and evil. It's, it's limited. It's almost as if... Uh, there's a six-year-old. We're like six-year-olds who don't understand what's going on, but our parents might know better. Something like if uh, I've heard the, the, the analogy of a six-year-old who um, his parents have to leave, and they have to put, put the six-year-old with a babysitter. And he doesn't understand why his parents are leaving. Maybe they have to go work, you know, and, and pay the bills, provide for the food, whatever it is. And he's like, no, mom, no, dad, don't leave me. But they, they know they'll be back. They can't really convey that to the six-year-old or And so there's this this distress that's going on because the six-year-old doesn't see the whole picture, but yet his parents love him. So that's a simple analogy, but I think it could possibly show that that because we're mere mortals, we're men, and God is God, that there is a, a way where maybe our perspective is limited. And so just as, as we go through this, think about that. And, and our friends, especially those who don't understand the Bible, what God says, his story, what the people say in the Bible, they don't understand how we fit in. They don't get this. They don't know it. So there's even more of a limitation of a perspective. Now, we have this perspective. We've read our Bibles. I mean, the Bible speaks on suffering so much, and we're going to see that tonight. But even us, we, even people in the Bible are confounded. They're, they're bewildered about suffering, and they know the God of the Bible. But think of our friends. So we want to bring them hope. We want to bring uh, where, where we are. We want to teach them maybe God's perspective, help them see it a little bit better. So in order to get a Godlike perspective, we have to consider what God has revealed to us. So understanding suffering starts with looking at first, and this is the order we're going to go in, looking at God's story. So that's the grand narrative. Uh, I believe that that's, that's the number one way to understand God's story. That's the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, how it all fits together. Number two is going to be we're going to look at God's people kind of zooming in, zooming in on people who are dealing with suffering. And what, is, what does the Bible say about that? So we're getting God's perspective, the whole story, how he has revealed himself to us from, from the beginning of time to even in the future. And then looking at the people and then how we fit into all this, this that really God has going on. And that'll be point number three. So, as we look to God's story, it's God's view. We're understanding suffering with God's story. We have to start with what the Bible says and where it starts is Genesis 1. You guys are familiar, but it's when everything was good. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created it. And it goes on consecutively. Of, he made this, and he made this, and he made this, and it was good. It was good. It was good. And, and use the, the term shalom. Shalom is peace. How everything, this is an easy definition for shalom, is how everything just should be. How everything's supposed to be. And just think of that world. How everything is just supposed to be. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no bitterness. There's, there, there's, it's just the way it should be. It's good. But then we know everything radically changes in Genesis chapter 3. Rebellion comes in. Sin. Man Man sins, specifically Adam and Eve, they sin. And there's this rebellion against God where really Satan tempts man, Satan tempts Adam and Eve and says, if you will eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And we think, man, why did they eat that fruit? And we continue, we can, just think about this. They're in this garden where it's everything how it should be. God gave them everything, everything they need to eat, probably a nice climate. They had no worries, no cares. They were provided for. They walked with God. This this relationship with their creator and one another. I mean, God made woman for man, and everything was the way it should be. And yet, Satan comes in and says, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. He's holding back from you. Genesis 3 tells of how man wanted to be like God, to usurp God's power. Basically, to just take over the king, to take over the creator, take over the one who owns it all, needs nothing. And they said, we want to be like him. Man, that's wicked. And so rebellion happened. And then because of that, we know there was um, a broken world. And what did God say? He said, if you eat of that fruit, if you don't eat of this fruit, Adam and Eve, because if you eat it, you will surely die. And they didn't understand what death was, but I guarantee you they knew they shouldn't do it. More so, they knew they should trust their creator, right? It wasn't about the consequence that was so bad. It was the fact that they committed treason against the holy God, their their kind God that loved them so much. So then, because of that, death entered the world. Now, they didn't die. He could have just wiped them right off. But instead, he put death into the world. Adam and Eve left the garden. He took them out of the garden. And now, their years started ticking. And they would die. And they were entering into a world where now animals killed animals. And there was death. Plants decayed. And there was rust. And all the world as we know it. That's what we're in now. This period right after everything was good. Then you have the rebellion. And now we're in this period of brokenness broken everywhere we look and that's the world that adam and eve were put in and this was the curse this was the consequence of what they did and so right now when we're talking to our friends who are amidst this this world where they see everything is just there's it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be and we know that we can come in and we can relate to them but then we as believers we have this view of the new heaven and the new earth. We have this view in Revelation chapter 20 where it says, I will make all things new, God says. The lion will lay with the lamb. That's amazing. And this story is profound. This story is necessary because without the fact that there's, we're, we'll be resurrected and there will be a new hope and a, a new life and a new world, all this, and this, if, if that wasn't there, it just doesn't make sense. God wants to make things how they once were. And he's in the process of doing that now. He's doing that. We're not there yet. It's broken still. And actually, I think he's starting, he ultimately is starting with us. Instead of fixing the brokenness of, of how there's tsunamis and all this, this is terrible, I think he's starting with his people. He's starting in our hearts where the problem originated. We wanted to rebel, and now he's turning rebels into followers. But, anyways, we are in the middle. New Shalom isn't here yet. And the reason why we're in this middle, this broken part, this part where we see hints of goodness, hints of the, how it used to be, right? We see hints of how the garden was when everything was pr- perfect, everything was good, but then we also see how, the brokenness. Why is that? It's because of rebellion and there's this consequence of sin, this consequence of going against God and it was both a moral consequence, there's a, there's a, a moral consequence in that we have this uh, sin nature in us now. We have a curse within us. So every man and woman, after the line of Adam and Eve, they have in their veins almost, to say in a spiritual way, we have this curse that, that happened because they rebelled against God. So we are all guilty. We've all rebelled against God in some way, but we also are ancestors of Adam and Eve. And so there's this moral consequence, and, then, and we're bent toward evil now. We're bent toward kind of a running from God. Adam and Eve weren't bent in that way. It was different. And then there's a natural evil. There's tsunamis. There's hurricanes. There's destruction all around us. So we tend to ask, how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people? Right? That's the question. On the table tonight, how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people, and yet the, the question should be flipped around. How can an all-good, all-powerful God allow good things to happen to bad people? How can he allow good things to happen to... How, how come I'm breathing the air that I breathe? How can I, how, how can I even understand friendship and love and, and sharing and community and all these things in this world that really is broken, And I rebelled, we rebelled against God, and yet he spares us, and yet he brings his grace upon us. And so I just, I start out this way because we come at it from, you know, our friends and ourselves, in our hearts, we're we're good people, why do we suffer? But we really are wicked, as the Bible would say, There's there's this brokenness within us, this bend toward evil. We've all rebelled and sinned against a holy God. It says, no, not one seeks after God. So, coming from a God perspective, how can bad people receive good? And now we're on the path of what is righteousness? How, how does the unrighteous become righteous? Right? How does the, the really bad become good? And we know the answer is Jesus. We know the answer is the cross. We're funneling it down, and we have to get this God perspective. So you have God's story. We see how the path went from everything was good, and we rebelled, and now where we're at, and why we are where we are. And it's because what we've done. It's not because of anything God has done. We've turned from God. Now, number two is understanding suffering by looking at God's people. So you have God's view now zooming in. It's a help for Christians really to understand reasons for suffering when we look at why a Christian suffers. I want to just speak on this briefly because I think it's critical to know Christians have a unique uh, purpose in their suffering. And the Bible speaks very clearly on this. So the first verse to read today is Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3. I'm going to move through these as fast as I can turn to them. But the Bible, uh, surprisingly, you would think it wouldn't. I mean, it's just everywhere is loaded with suffering. And here it answers. uh, So so one would be, for our own sake, we suffer, surprisingly enough. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause, the psalmist says. Defend my cause against all uh, and ungodly people, from the deceitful and the unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. See, in his, in his oppression, in this time, he, he's, he's calling out to the Lord. He's drawing near to God. What's funny is, That's the wrong verse. Read 46 with me now. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. What was the last one you were reading? Uh, That's a good one. 43, 1. 46. God is our refuge and strength. You guys know this one. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling again god's our refuge and strength amidst trouble we will not fear we will turn to him then you have other verses like second corinthians 1 8 through 9 for we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of the affliction we have experienced in asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul speaking. And he goes on, he says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So there's this reliance on God, this this trusting of God that can only come through the suffering that he partook of. Psalm 119, 67, starting in 67. <clears throat> the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. A lot of us can relate to that, right? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It's good for me that I was afflicted. It's good for me that I was afflicted, he says, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And so we see even obedience to God comes through suffering. And we could go on uh, to become more like Jesus, to reach maturity of character. One last one is uh, Romans chapter five. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. We see that to reach the maturity of character, there is suffering. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see that suffering is for our own sake and really to learn to trust God, to obey God, to to grow in maturity. But also we see that suffering is for the sake of others. Read with me in Philippians chapter (laughs) 1. Chapter 1, verse 14. And most of the brothers, Paul again, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's Paul imprisoned and glorifying God, giving him fame because now his brothers are bold even amidst Paul's uh, imprisonment. They're more bold, he says, to speak the word. So we see God's people, that they gain courage in his suffering. It shows that they even have power. Um, read 2 Corinthians with me, chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses seven through 12. <laughs> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And you guys know people who have dealt with suffering. Some of the, I mean, I, 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 first, I'm not really one to talk on this subject. There are so many people that have dealt, they've been in the pit of suffering and still are. And we see in them a, a humility, a trust in the Lord, a crying out to God that, really draws our eyes to Jesus. Jesus is manifested in their suffering, in the way that they show him off amidst such hard times that we all, honestly, many of us can't even understand what they're going through. And so we see for the sake of, sake of others, people suffer. For Christ's sake, we suffer to identify with Christ. Galatians 2.20 Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in, in me. And in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that's a life that is identified with Christ. It's a life of hardship. It's not a life of ease. And the book of Philippians talks a lot about suffering for um, to really share in Christ's sufferings and his glory. So there's all this in the Bible, but the question still remains, why am I suffering? Christians ask that a lot of times. What are two common questions that our friends, our, our Christian friends, our, our believer, fellow believers ask? And one might be, is God is God distant is he does he not care for me right now right that could be a really skewed question one of our friends could have another question could be i don't and they take different forms but it might be is god punishing me you guys ever felt like that or heard anyone say that so so our friends might think that and we have to remind them just an aside we must remind them of the truths of the gospel so how would we answer does god not care about me Well, again, we we draw right to the cross. With believers, there's something special about this. God cares for you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you and he loves you, gave his life up for you. These verses have shared that. We know God cares. Am I being punished? No, you're not being punished. Jesus was already punished for you. The wrath of God was already spent on Jesus. There's no punishment. There's no wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We must remind our friends when they're skewed along those questions. Is God punishing me or does he not care? That's when we bring the gospel in for sure. How do we respond to those around us who are suffering, though and there's no answer. We don't, it's not, it, they're not asking these, these questions where they just need to hear the gospel because it's, it's does God not care or does God, is God punishing me? But maybe they're suffering and, and we don't have answers. I think that's okay because giving answers to why they're suffering actually doesn't seem to be biblical. It doesn't seem to be something that uh, sh- we, need to, we need to know and say, hey, this is why you're suffering. We're called to mourn with those who are mourning. And so what we're learning tonight, the big part is, why is there suffering? But I want to be very careful because we don't need to break our notes out tonight and be like, this is why. No, we need to put our shoulder on someone. Jerry taught taught greatly about this when he went through Job and how we're to come alongside one another and just love them, pray for them, care for them, and uh, strengthen them and mourn with them. But, Let's look at the people who in the Bible have suffered real quick. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7:15. Ecclesiastes 7:15 In my vain life I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You hear that? The righteous man, the righteous man perishes in his goodness. The good man perishes in his goodness. And yet the wicked man, his life is extended in his evil. It's confounding, really. It perplexes us, it, it perplexed the writer here. And so we can look to other uh, common passages. Jeremiah 12, 1 through 4. You've got the weeping prophet. Well, who better to go to? Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord... You know me, you see me and test my heart toward you, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for the day of the slaughter. And he goes on, and he's like, "Why is this happening?" Last one, Habakkuk. It's a really hard one to find real quick. It's a good thing. Kason's got it on the back of your um, there up there. But if we turn to Habakkuk, uh, chapter one, two through four, "O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear." Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And he goes on and on. And verse 5 here says, this is God speaking, he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. He's telling Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And I think that sums up something that we have to grasp is that God is doing a work and we wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't understand it. We can't see it all. In no way do we have a perspective like God that can look down on time all at once and how he's directing and everything he's doing when we're looking in the midst of suffering. It's challenging because we're not God. We want to be like God. We want to be able to explain suffering. Our friends want to be able to explain suffering. But how do we, how do we, talk about suffering with them. We just want to tell them, look, God's God. I trust in him, but they don't. And so how do we give them something that is a hint of what we're, we see and that trust that we have and even that following that has come through the Holy Spirit that's in our hearts? How do we give them a taste of that? And I think we just point everyone to the cross. And what does that mean? Here's what Tim Keller says. Christianity is the only religion with a God that suffers. God himself has come into our reality and experienced injustice, violence, and rejection. Confidence in the character of God, his love, his justice, and his wisdom becomes possible only when people see what he did in coming himself to die on the cross in order to halt the greatest evil and suffering of all. What is that? Separation from him. What confirmation is there that God has some reason for allowing suffering and evil to temporarily continue? And the answer is the cross. What confirmation is there that God has a reason for allowing suffering and evil to continue? And it's the cross. And this is why we're called to mourn with those who mourn in the in the in the briar patch in the, in the thick of it where hardship is and where it's messy. We're called to be there with those who suffer. We're called to ask questions and get in people's lives and come alongside them, even when it doesn't look like we're doing very much. But mourning with those who mourn, bringing comfort and hope and love and kindness. That, that the embodying Christ as we listen and pray and serve those around us. And so even as I wrote this, I, I thought of how uh, am I doing that? Am I, am I opening up my life so that I'm ready to suffer with those who are suffering? So number three would be understanding suffering and seeing how we fit in. How do we fit into all this? We've seen God's story. We've seen why we're in this brokenness, this, this period right now, this middle ground area where it, it was really good. It went really bad. That's where we're at right now, and it's going to get excellent in the future. right? And then we're looking at people in the Bible where they're saying, this, this is why as Christians we suffer, and this is why really I, I don't understand it fully. God is God. And people who know God well, better than me, prophets, kings that w- w- seem to walk with God and led whole countries and, and, and things like this, they saw God work in mighty ways and yet they're, they're confused at suffering. But now, how do we fit in with this? And I want to start out with thinking about where a lot of people are right now. They throw it out. They say there's no way God could be all-powerful and yet allow suffering if he's good. And they say there's no way God could be good and yet all-powerful and allow suffering, but they want to throw him out. And I say, if you say there is no God, then you have no answers. And the atheist has no answers for evil. There's nothing. But the Christian knows Jesus, and Jesus fully answers the problem of evil. And we have a hope. We have a triumphant God. This is where we fit in because it all points back to God. Even amidst suffering, we look to God, a God who gets all the honor and fame. Another way to put honor and fame would be glory or praise. We celebrate because our God is the triumphant one. So what I mean by that is we're looking and we're seeing God's hand in time in this story. So we as believers actually have an insider's look in how God created everything for his glory ultimately. Everything is about God. The Bible is the story of God. It's not a rule book. It's a, it's a, it's a book to look and see what God is doing. And so he could have made an evil free world. I'm just putting it out there. You can tell your friends that, but he didn't. Let's just be honest, he didn't. Evil came into this world, and we want answers to why God allowed rebellion. Have any of you guys thought this question while I was talking? Why did God set it up this way? Why did he allow rebellion in the first place? I mean, we're getting deep. I mean, this is like, how are you going to handle this in the you know, next 10 minutes? These are questions that have confounded theologians of disgust in these things, but I suggest We should ask these questions. We should talk about them because our friends will. And so, to sum it up, God would not have fully been revealed without suffering. He wouldn't have been fully displayed or shown off. God desires, He wants to show all of His attributes. What are His attributes? I mean, you have His justice, you have His mercy, you have His power, we have His grace, we have His forgiveness, we have His kindness. All these attributes were shown. That's why at the beginning of time, as the Bible says, he planned on coming to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Before time began, this wasn't like a backup plan. Whoa, Adam and Eve, they just did what I told them not to. Now I have to come up with something. It says before even time as we know it even existed, God knew what was going to happen, and he had this plan. So then why? To display his love, justice, and mercy. And it was vastly displayed through Jesus. And so in the beginning of time, he knew that he planned on coming to this world to suffer and die and become a man to the point of obedience, give his life up, even death on a cross for the fame of God, for the glory, for his praise, for the triumphant king to be honored. It's not that he needed it. He didn't need this glory, this fame. This is is who God is. God is God. He's God overall, And this is why not yet believers have a hard time with this. They have a hard time getting it because they don't want to make God famous. They don't want God to get the glory. They don't know about that. We're rebels apart from God's grace, right? So to understand why would God get all the glory? But we get it because he's number one, numero uno, top dog. He's, 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 he's the one over all. No he doesn't owe anybody anything. He needs nothing. But he deserves the praise and the honor, doesn't he? And we give him this from our from our insides, from deep within, because of what we've seen him do. And we as believers know this. We look at the cross and we just exclaim, Great are you, God. Gracious are you. We can never do that apart from suffering. It would never happen. The gospel wouldn't even exist. So we have to focus on the cross, though, because there's not yet believers that have a hard time understanding these things, the fame of God. Why would God get the fame? Why should he? And this is the number one question that kept me from pursuing God. Why would a loving God allow people, children, to starve in Africa when all he has to do is send rain? That was the question. I, I kept asking people that. I'm like, you can answer that for me. Uh, I'll consider being a Christian. Well, I read a book, and it gave me some answers. It clued me into some things, and the Lord was working on me, moving on me in other areas. I had a lot of sin and issues where I really that was just an excuse for a time. But then I seriously looked into that, and I learned. I learned this message of the cross that no other religion or false religion really has. They take away the power of the cross, right? People knock on your door, doom, 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 doom. And what's the first thing they, 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 they do after you talk to them for a little bit? The number one thing that they always hit on is, Jesus wasn't God. He was created by God. He was like God, but he wasn't God, right? Because what's that do? It takes away the power of the cross. If it's God himself who was naked and beaten and whipped and, and, and humiliated on a cross for us, then there's comfort knowing if he would do that, he would suffer like that. Then even when I'm suffering and I don't get it, I know that God cares, I know that God loves me. I know that he loves me so much that he would give His life in that way. And so I continue to come back to, we have to look to the cross and explain to our friends what we believe about the cross. Hey, what's that, what's that cross mean to you around your neck? Great, great conversation, you can get it to. They, t- they make Jesus less than God himself, though, the false religions. We have to, be, we have to really understand the severity of that. We cannot understand God apart from the cross, the ultimate suffering. What was the greatest tragedy or the greatest evil that was ever committed? It was the murder of God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The the same people that he created destroyed him. The same same people that the creator created put him to death. He allowed it. It wasn't like they trapped him. He allowed it, like, a, like a, a sheep led to slaughter. But he walked right into it, set it up from beginning of time. And so, if there's no broken world, no decay, no rust, no death, nothing, then there'd be no gospel because then this could never have happened. The greatest story that, that we tell and, and we, we sing about could never have happened. There'd be no gospel. If there was no rebellion in the garden, then there could be no mercy shown. There could be no justice shown as well. And that was shown perfectly. God's justice, the judge of this world, right? He judged us. He judged Adam and Eve. He judges us. But then he also was judged. And our sins were paid for. Because he was judged. The unguilty made guilty for the guilty. He was judged for us. And so we have. if we have no suffering then we wouldn't have a savior. The whole story falls apart. And for the fame, here's here's where it all boils down to. For the fame of a loving, all-powerful God, suffering exists. And we can look. Now, that's hard, right? Because we say, well, God shouldn't get the fame then. But we know he should, and so we wrestle. But here's the rest of it. For the fame of a a loving, all-powerful God, suffering exists, And we can look to the greatest suffering that ever took place for comfort in this period of death and hardship. We look to the cross. Without the cross, without God himself stepping into this world and dying for for mankind, it all is meaningless. Especially if he stayed in the grave. Thank God he was raised from the grave. Defeating death. Death showing that 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 new life that he took on, that he was raised, we will one day be raised like him. Praise be to God. And so we finish with Romans chapter eight. Very familiar verse that we can turn to often. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In that context, really, he's, he's looking to a, 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 a perfection, a, a future hope, a future glory. And he's saying, but right now, how can we, we, we look to he who gave us his son? How will he not graciously give us all things? He says prior, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us suffering's now but there will be a greater hope revelation 20 says i will make all things new there will be no more pain there will be no suffering there will be no more sorrow and so when we're tempted to think why would god do it this way that's an honest question i was talking to my wife becca and she's like i I get this i get what you're saying but in the end i'm like Why couldn't he have just chosen another way where suffering didn't exist? And I I can't come up with one. And personally, I'm glad I didn't because the God of this universe, he's the one who created us and he knew this before time began. So I take comfort in that as I look to the cross. And so may we point our friends to that. However we show them, hey, this is what I take comfort in. Whenever, I'm, whenever I fear, whenever I have anxiety, whenever I feel like I, I deserve punishment, I know that I'm not getting it. And we talk to our friends also, and we could say, this is, this is how I understand suffering. This is my, my savior. This is my God who really I live my life for, and I see his justice. We talk to them about that. I see his mercy. I see his forgiveness. I see his love. I see his suffering. And now we're just gospel all day you know you're on your third cup of coffee a cow of coffee or starbucks wherever you like to go and you just keep tell, talking the gospel as you're asking them questions and so it should be a rich discussion so let's pray father we thank you so much for your thank you so much for your your love that has been poured out upon us how you didn't spare us your your son we are not guilty Because of what you have done for us, you died on the cross for us. You sent your one and only son who was perfect in every way for the imperfect. And I just give you praise. We give you praise. We revel and celebrate and proclaim that you are the triumphant God who is making all things new. And we look to a future hope. And if any of our friends or we cannot see this hope, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly that you are the one who is restoring and renewing all things, ultimately, the hearts of men who have been turned from you. Help us to speak to our friends, not yet Christians, amongst us, God. We pray that they would turn to you from rebellion and follow Jesus. And we'll do that work, Lord, we pray. Use our conversations, give us opportunities all through the week. We leave it in your hands, God. And we. We praise you and want to give you all the fame and glory with our lives. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.